Well, thank you so much to the Children's Ministry for this wonderful gift. It is indeed brings joy to our hearts to see all these children being taught the Word of God and encouraged in the faith. It is on. So I'll just speak louder. Uh, we truly thank God for uh, Francis and Art, Jennifer and Denise as well, and all the teachers that are laboring in this important ministry. Uh, it is truly a God-honoring, important ministry. And um, and we thank you for, for this gift. Uh, maybe we can uh, this picture remind us this week to pray for them, pray for the leaders and teachers and all the children. And let's pray for them now. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. God, we do thank you so much for our children. We thank you for these little ones and you have declared during your earthly ministry that do not let these little ones hinder them from coming to you. You you call the nation of Israel to teach and pass down your truths to children day in and day out, morning, noon, and night. Formal and informal instructions to them. We thank you for our dear leaders and the teachers of this ministry. Oh God, would you grant them just much grace, much strength, much encouragement of heart to labor hard in the harvest field of these uh, little ones. You have said that whatever we do to the least of our brethren, we're doing it to you and help them to see the importance of each soul, each child entrusted to them. Pray that you would help them to come alongside the parents, especially the dads, so that that together we might um, instruct and model and train these little ones according to righteousness so that uh, you might use um, them and use all of us as your instruments to uh, teach them the truth so that at the earliest possibility that they might come to faith in the Lord, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel of Christ, that they might have their sins forgiven, that they might be possessors of eternal life. We pray for these little ones, O God. Would you protect them? Would you keep them? Would you separate them from evil and harm? And would you soften their hearts? to the Word of God, and every Lord's Day, and every day at home when they're being instructed by the Word by their parents, O oh Lord, that the seed of God's Word be sown in their hearts, and Lord, as we water it by prayer, one day it would, um, it would grow to a harvest of salvation, a harvest of righteousness uh, of these little ones, and that they will one day grow up and replace us, replace us as uh, teachers, leaders, even as pastors, and to continue the work of the gospel ministry here and throughout the world until your return. We thank you so much for these dear little ones, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. We just got back from our annual elders and staff retreat. It's a real wonderful time of Every year, meeting and eating, that's the theme of our time together. I think we must have spent over 15, 20 hours just sitting around the Word and sitting around um, decisions and really spending time thinking about all of you. Uh, Bob will share more, but we went down the list of each member of Cornerstone. 
and uh, bulk of our time was spent just talking about each one of you and doing our many, many SWOT analysis of each member of Cornerstone, how we can better pray and better serve, better shepherd and teach each of you and um, spend some time praying for, praying for you as well. So it's a, it's a wonderful time of, of ministry and fellowship and unity with uh, Bob and I, Marcus, Jason and Joshua, these uh, pastors. And I think our vision of a biblical church has grown. Our vision, our understanding of what we are to do as shepherds and teachers in the house of God has grown. And we uh, truly thank God. We are humbled by God's grace to give us such wisdom and understanding. And as we present these, our thoughts to you, our, our decisions to you, we, 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 we're confident, we trust that It'll result in just great joy uh, in our church in the next two weeks. Um, the verses that were forefront of our hearts as we met together uh, was from Proverbs 16. Um, man makes plans in his heart, but Lord determines the steps. The Lord establishes the steps. Man makes plans, but the answer is from the Lord. As a church, as elders and pastors, we make plans, we have decisions, we made decisions that we, we made plans, all with the understanding that these are just plans of men. May God's sovereign will be done. He will establish our plans. And whatever He does, it's the perfect will of God. Inflexibility is a mark of pride. When we say, these are our plans, these plans must be executed and must be accomplished, that's pride. Humility says, these are our humble plans, these are our decisions, but let God's will be done. If at the end of the year, the exact opposite happened, we bless His name. That's exactly what God wanted. We had these plans, but God had other plans, and His plans are perfect. So, um, it's with that heart we close out 06 and begin 07. And uh, you know, we rejoice that we're studying Titus 2 to end this year. And we'll continue our study into next year in Titus 2. It is fitting for our church because our theme for next year is from James 1.22, being doers of the Word of God. Uh, focused, focusing our lives uh, on doctrine, but on the side of doctrine where it's the emphasis of practicing doctrine, demonstrating doctrine in our lives. And Titus 2 is perfect for that theme um, to prepare us for next year. Let's read Titus chapter 2 again, verses 1 through 15. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's briefly review our study from last week. We looked at the first four words of verse 1, but as for you, Paul is contrasting Titus, his life and ministry, from the false teachers in the previous verse of chapter 1, verse 16. He describes these false teachers in no uncertain terms. He uses strong words to describe these false teachers. They profess to know God. But they deny Him by their works. So their profession is orthodox. They have right doctrine. You hear them speak and you would think that they are mature, godly believers. But don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be so naive. Just to believe people by their speech. Titus, you and the church must be more discerning. You must go beyond mere profession of faith. To entrust them as, as leaders. You need to look at their lives. Look at their works. Look at the fruit of their lives. For the fruit reveals the root. A man's life will be revealed by his actions. And you will see over time that they deny God whom they profess. Therefore, they are detestable men. Disobedient men. They are unfit for any good work They are worthless for any good work. They bring no spiritual benefit to the church. They're not neutral. They harm the church. They devastate true ministry. They undermine genuine godliness. But as for you, Titus, you must be set apart from such men. You must be different on the other side, other end of the spectrum. And then he commands Titus, how to not be like these false teachers. He commands Titus how he might be different. How he might avoid the pitfalls of being detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. It is not by doctrine. It's not by truth only. It is not through mere theology. It is by right life. It is by applying truth by your, to your own life, modeling it, and speaking the things that fit right doctrine. Therefore, Paul commands Titus to speak the things that fit right doctrine. Just giving informational truth is not enough. You must be a shepherd. 
You must not just be a merely a teacher, a professorial approach to ministry, a distant, just gathering of facts and dispensing information. No, Paul commands Titus to constantly speak, teach, exhort, encourage people about the right life that fits right doctrine. The first Timothy four sixteen. May I repeat that all the time? Watch your doctrine and watch your life. By it you will save yourself and your hearers. A strong exhortation that must be in the minds of all believers, especially those who are called to lead and teach the household of God. That they must be mindful, they must be examining, daily taking care of their doctrine and to their lives, because Lives are at stake. Your own soul is at stake. And the souls of those people who are listening to you and following you, their lives are at stake. If you fail to watch your doctrine, you'll lead people astray. And if you fail to watch your life, you will lose your soul and lose those who follow after you. The purpose of these commands is not for our sakes. It's not so that people might be enamored by our, our, ourselves, by our lives, by our church. It's not so that people might have a high view of us, high view of Christians. It's not so that people might say, well, what a good guy he is, or what a great gal she is. It's not an earthly motivation. The compelling reason for right life is not on this side of eternity. The gravity of right life is all tied to the fact that God's reputation, the attitude of non-believers to the Word of God, and the doctrine of God, those things, these things are at stake with our lives. We spent some amount of time on this last week. Verse 5, that the Word of God may not be reviled. The first compelling issue is that the honor of God's Word is at stake by our lives. The Word of God may not be maligned, dishonored, reviled, blasphemed. The world, they just can't wait. They just can't wait. They, they love it when Christian leaders fall. I mean, it's a time for, it's, a, it's an opportunity for celebration. They can't, they're just, they're in your spot, they're in your crosshairs. They're watching you at work. Your friends are watching you, waiting for you to stumble. Your member, the members of your, our own family are waiting for us to just to be inconsistent in our lives with the truths that we profess. Why? Because they want to so revile the Word of God. They want to dishonor Scripture. They want to say, ah, I told you Scripture is not true. I told you the Gospel is a farce. I knew it. The Bible has no power. Your life. Look at your life. Look what you just did. Look what you are doing. That's why Paul says, it's so important for us. Because the world is not like impressed by our doctrine. They're not impressed by our knowledge of the Bible, our understanding of Scripture. They're utterly unimpressed. What impresses them is consistency. Right? Consistency, integrity. Whether it's, you know, in, in, in any sphere of, of life, in any religion, any philosophy, anyone lives consistently 
with what they believe and how they live, right? There's there's respect given. I mean, it's like, you know, I I can't think of anything. Like Last Samurai, right? This American guy goes to Japan and wow, look at their lives. He's not impressed by their Shinto religion, but he's he sees how I don't know they do farming and cleaning and raising their kids, and he's impressed. Right? Actually, that movie was like a parody of uh, you know, Dancing with Wolves. Same thing. A uh, white guy goes to Indians, same thing. Sees their lives. He's impressed by these Indians. Wow, they're not savages. Look at the way they farm and hunt buffalo and you know, raise their kids. Non-believers, they have to respect consistency, integrity. When Christians aren't consistent, when Christians don't have integrity, when Christians speak so well and live so poorly, right? There are Christians in the church, but devils in the world, oh, they salivate, they pounce, not at us so much, but against the Word of God. Verse 8, the second purpose, right? so that an opponent may be put to shame, because they have nothing evil to say about us. They're ashamed. It's what Christ did. Christ, by His life, light came into the world and exposed the deeds of darkness. Our Lord's holiness, His gentleness, His compassion exposed the bankrupt hypocrisy of, of Orthodox Judaism, of Rabbinical Judaism, of these Pharisees who are all intent on the minutia of, of the law. They lost sight of the heavier, weightier matters of the law of of justice, mercy, and compassion, and by our, our Lord's uh, uh, practice of these things, exposed their corruption, and they were ashamed. And many of them were convicted. They were ashamed, like Nicodemus, right? like Barnabas. They were convicted to heart to their heart, and they sought Christ out. Now others, their hearts were hardened, confirming just their depravity, their 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 sinfulness, their their commitment to their religion as a source for pride rather than a true religion of scriptures. But that's the purpose. We want to put people to shame, not to like put them down, so that that shame, that worldly sorrow, might become godly sorrow. That they would see their own sinfulness, their own depravity, their own... um, separateness from God's holiness, and that the Holy Spirit might use that, coupled with the gospel, to bring them to Christ. Bring them to Christ. And we have the opportunity for that all the time, with our co-workers, especially family members, and how they observe us. You know, my dad, just him seeing like how I was living my life, and how I was really treating my wife and raising our children gave me the platform for the gospel. For many of you, you talked about how um, people close to you living the Christian life opened your heart to the gospel. Right? I mean, some of you, I think, were saved through that. They might be put to shame for the gospel's sake. Not worldly shame, but shame that will lead them to Christ. And then verse 10, in order that they may adorn the doctrine of God 
our Savior in every respect, our, our primary purpose to wear the doctrine of God by our lives. We, when we live, when older men have these characteristics, when younger men are self-controlled, when older women are reverent in their behavior and all those qualities, when younger women love their husbands, love their children, our workers at home, and so on, it doesn't make sense to us. You know, as, as people of this world, you know, it doesn't make sense, but the Bible says when we do these things, we wear the doctrine of God. We bring God with us wherever we go. You know, wearing the doctrine of God is not about, like before you pray, you know, before meals at a restaurant, you stand up and pray in a loud voice. That's how you bring God with you. It's not having a heavy, thick Bible with you wherever you go. I mean, it's okay if you have a heavy, thick Bible. You know, more power to you. But like, I used to think that way. You know, I used to, long we stay, go to class and don't bring my small Bible, bring my big Bible. Before class open, open it up so other students could see I'm a Christian. Man, nothing wrong with that, but I mean, that's how we think. It's by these overt ways of just showing Christianity. That's the way to bring God. But the Bible says, no, it's not. I mean, bumper stickers are all good. You know, the fish symbols are not bad. I mean, I'm not, you know, wearing crosses. It's all good, but that's... The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the way we bring God with us to the world, to this darkened world, is by these character qualities. And when we have these qualities in increasing measure, non-believers will see God. And, Cosmeo, they'll see the beauty of God. Right? They'll see the attractiveness of God. In doctrine, they see the truth of God. But by our lives, they see the beauty of God. Right? So when I'm preaching, we see the truth of God. When we sing, we, we sense the beauty of God. Especially when a good singer sings. Well, <laughs> you know, music... Like when we sing these songs, like Whole Holy Night, I mean, it goes to our souls and we sense just the beauty of God and who He is and the Gospel. And not in a didactic way, but an experiential way. Likewise, we can't go to work and start singing, you know, Whole Holy Night. We can't, but by having these qualities in an experiential way, their eyes are open to see the attractiveness of God. And they want to grow closer to God. They want to draw nearer to God. And that's the purpose. So that is why it is so important for us as Christians to have right life. Titus 2. So Paul categorizes a church to six different categories. And he goes through them one by one. And he gives, gives Titus, he gives us a list of character qualities that would cause non-believers to honor God's word, that would cause non-believers to be shamed, that would cause non-believers to see the beauty of Christ. The six categories of people in the church are older men, older women, younger women, I mean, excuse me, older, older men, younger, younger men, older women, younger women. The fifth category is church leaders. Church leaders. Right, and we talk about that. And then slaves, workers. Right? How workers, what qualities workers should have to bring glory and honor to Christ. Paul begins with older men. 
older men. Now, notice here clearly, it's not old men. Right? No, I'm not old, right? No, Paul's not an old, he says older men, relatively. In a church, any group, there's older and younger. So, in a flock group, in a church, right now, you might be considered a younger man, but you're like David, right? Sigler, I mispronounce his last name all the time. At a church, you're 22. Cornerstone is a younger man. He goes to UC Irvine, CBF. Right? Eric here, Gableson, he looks at him, David, wow, that's an old guy over there. Right? An older man, 22. I remember when I was 17, 18, I thought 23-year-old man, wow, he's old. Man, 23. It's all relative. So David here is a younger man, but at CBF, he's an older man. It's all relative, depending on the context. So depending on the church, you can't fix a number. If I go to Grace Community, I'm a kid there. Right? I'm a young kid. At Cornerstone, I'm an older man. Likewise here. So I would say, if you're 30 and over at Cornerstone, you're an older man. Period. Right? All those 29-year-olds are happy right now. Right? <laughs> right? No, but 30 and up, no doubt you're an older, older man. 25 to 29, you're right around the corner for being an older man. Right? So this, Paul is talking, the Bible is talking directly to you. Right? And it applies to younger men as well. These are goals you're aspiring to. These are the character qualities. So it applies to women as well, moms, right, children. It applies to everyone, but Paul is addressing older men. Paul is saying to Titus, you must speak to the older men. And you must call them to, this, to these spiritual qualities. He's saying, look at your church. Start your instruction with the older men. Right? Older men are crucial. They are important. They're significant. Do not overlook the older men. Heard of a church, a real focus on young people in the church today. I heard of a church where they said that anyone over 40 cannot serve in leadership. Right? They want the young people, next generation, youth movement, and focus on them to be leaders. That's so backward. The Bible esteems older men and highlights the emphasis, highlights the importance of older men in the congregation. That, that is such a warped view of ministry, a warped view of life. God actually calls us to respect and honor those who are older than we are. Those who are aged, who have walked with God for a greater length of time, who have lived life, experienced life in a greater measure. Leviticus 19.32 Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. Job 12.12 Wisdom is with the aged. With long life is understanding. That's so biblical. To show respect to those who are older than you. We're to esteem them. And ministry is to begin with them. And by God's grace, because of my Korean culture, it is in, you know, by, by my grandparents, my parents, it's ingrained in me to show respect to those who are older. I'm always cognizant of when I meet a man, is he younger than me? Then I need to honor him. Is he same age? I need to honor him in this way. Is he older? I need to give him double honor. 
like double honor. I mean, it's just, you know, like um, in Korean culture, when you're seated at a, a, a meal and you have all those like side dishes, you don't touch a side dish unless until the older man at that table eats from it first. So I remember sitting there and like telling my grandfather, eat that, hurry up, because I, I, you know, I can't go there until you go there. Right? I mean, simple, simple thing like that. Like, you know, Professor Pettigrew, he was call me Larry. Oh man, I can't call you Larry. And Mr. Pettigrew, call me Linda. I can't call you Linda. And when I was with the Smiths, uh, senior at Spokane, I stayed with them for a week. I was calling them Mr. and Mrs. Smith the whole week. And I, call me John, call me Elsie. Oh, I just, I just can't. Right? You know, I just, I want to show respect. I want to show honor, right? And in their way, it's like they were saying, yeah, no, just call me John, but, you know, I know, man, I, I, I got to think that they appreciate that. I got to think that is proper because the Bible calls us to honor those who are older, right? At the same time, though, age is just a number. You know, being older is really... No virtue. Like, there's no, like, virtue on, like, wow, you're older. Because everybody gets older. There's no, there's no option here, right? It's not like, there's no, like, you know, discipline required or, like, commitment required to get older. It's just life, right? So what is respectable is if you're older and you have godly character. If you're have greater conformity to Christ. Right? Your, your habits, your life is marked by Christ's likeness. That is a virtue. And that is why it's so crucial that older men are, have these traits. They're temperate. They're grave. They're dignified. They're, they're sober-minded. Because older men influence the church. If you think, as an older man, 25 to 29, and especially 30 and above. You don't influence the church, you, have, you don't understand life. You don't understand men. You don't understand the male species. You don't understand yourself. See, men, we just by nature, since we're boys, we looked up to those who are older. Remember when you were like 10, and you, there's a neighborhood kid who was 12, and like you looked at him, and like you just copied, like... You know, how he dressed and things he said and how he rode his bike and sports he played. It's just, that's in, it's such innate in, in, in the male species, male gender. You, and, and same thing in the church. Younger men look to, at older men and consciously, unconsciously, they, they're influenced. They imitate. They follow. So as an older man, you are setting an example. You are setting the pace. You are, you are influencing. The only question is, are you a good example or a bad example? Are you a good influence or a bad influence? Are you setting a fast pace or are you slowing people down? That is why Paul says you start with older men. If you lose the older men of a church, the battle's lost. Right? You know, you can't. Go beyond the older men. They set, they, they set the you know, glass ceiling. They, 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 they're a cap. The church will not rise above the older men of the church. So you must start with the older men. 
they must be godly and they must progress in godliness through the stages of life. They can't, right, they can't have arrested development spiritually. Right? So they might be older than a 12-year-old at 15, but if their mindset is a 15-year-old throughout their life, that's it's going to stunt the church. If they're stuck at 25 for the rest of their life, if they're stuck at 35, 45, 55, at every stage they must continue to progress in these qualities. They must be growing in Christ. Then the church can continue to grow along with them. If they get stuck at 30 and they're 30 years old for the rest of their lives and to that degree, church gets stuck. It's crucial that older men grow in godliness because they are examples. Right? Examples. It's crucial for ministry as well. Because older men, if you are not, if you do not have sound character, if you do not have these qualities, then you will become marginalized in ministry. Because ministry is a it's a character profession. Ministry is a character profession. You could be an ungodly man and be a great doctor, great lawyer, great mechanic, great dentist, great teacher. You can be just a, you know, just a deceiver, you know, without ethics and no integrity, and you'll be a better salesman maybe, right? You'll be better at your profession, but not in ministry. You can't bypass character. And so if you don't have these character and growing measure, you can't do ministry. You just can't. It's not we won't let you. It's just ministry won't come to you. They won't pass you the ball. It's like, right, you know, just they'll look at you and they'll pass the other way. Because ministry is just informal ministry. It's not just formal. It's just people. And people won't go to you. And what happens is you become sidelined, marginalized. And you just become spectators. What happens all the younger men will start ministering. Younger men will flourish and start leading the church and you will just become passive and you'll just be in the sidelines and next thing you know, you're in the fringes and you're just in the fringe of the church. All the activities going on and it's being done by the younger men of the church. Maybe the single men and the married and the fathers because they're not progressing, become marginalized. And so like, a negative example is entrenched in the church. Or younger men, instead of looking to older men as examples, they begin to despise the older men. Right? Like look down upon them. Right? This, you know, like circumvent them and say, oh man, you know, they're not examples to me. Right? And it'll cause them just greater pride. It'll cause them to have just, you know, a higher view of themselves. Last thing we need is young men with more pride. But that's what's going to happen when they look at older men and they're not walking with the Lord. They're not involved in ministry. They're not engaged in the gospel. They'll just have a higher view of themselves and which will just downward spiral because they'll go to the same thing. Pride causes downfall. They'll grow older and they'll become sidelined. So over time, you have a church with everybody in the sideline and just women ministering, right? <laughs> and so many churches are like that, is it not? You go to a church and like, all the women are like, they're like serving the Lord, going on missions, they're going to Africa by themselves and preaching the gospel. And all the men are like looking, you know, like spectating, watching. And the women are on fire for Christ. 
That's why older men, I mean, so much is at stake with older men having sound life. So we're going to address these qualities one at a time. You know, I'm going to muster up every ounce of wisdom I have in these areas. And our staff, which actually sat down, Bob, Marcus, and Jason, and Joshua, and asked them, what does it mean to be temperate? I, I'm running out here, right? I'm reading and studying, researching. You know, help me here. What, what do you see? I, and we talked about what it means to be temperate, right? For over an hour, just qualities, what it means to be temperate. So let's look at the first one. Older men are to be temperate. The literal meaning of the Greek word is wine without wine, unmixed with wine. That's the literal meaning. But in this passage, Paul is using the word in its metaphorical sense. Idea of free from extremes. Free from excess, free from passions or rashness. Idea of being well balanced. Someone who is drunk is not well balanced. Doesn't have self-control. They are like a pendulum, right? They're like crying like crazy, and then next moment they're giddy as a you know the child. Right? Idea of being sober. Idea of being temperate. Being self-possessed under all circumstances. Oxford, Oxford Dictionary says, observing moderation, moderation, moderate from extremes, not excessive, calm, restrained. The idea is that his life is marked by moderation. Nothing rules his life, controls his life, that leads him to go to extremes. Temperate attitude. Highlight to you three areas where men are tempted to go to extremes or are are marked by extremes. First area is emotions. When a man again is influenced by wine, he's with wine, he is emotionally a wreck, emotionally unstable. He is prone to extremes of extreme happiness to extreme sadness, sorrow, and depression. A man who is without wine, a man who is nephalios, a man who is temperate, his attitude is stable, consistent, and balanced through the joys and the sorrows of life, the hills and valleys of life. Through the good and the bad, he is temperate from extreme emotions. Right? You see that, right? You see little kids and they're intemperate. They have extreme emotions, right? I mean, we see this with children. One morning, they're happy. Next morning, they're sad. They're happy. They're sad. They go through the whole spectrum of emotions within a 30-minute period, right? And that happens all day long, right? Younger men, you can see where moodiness their emotions are on a hair trigger. Like, you know, they're easily offended, easily devastated. They easily fall apart emotionally. You just say one thing. You didn't mean anything about it. Say, hey, I don't know if I like your shirt. Why'd you wear pink today? And it's like, 
all of a sudden your life is just like not you know but just illustration brother I just you know pink's not my color not a big deal but they're, they're just so wound up right they just life falls apart and then something, something good happens something trivial and they're just happy right they forget the, the, the sense of their lives they forget the sense of like their surroundings who they're with and ministering to others and even just they're, they're extremely happy they're so self-centered self-focused they have no control or very little control over their emotions they are slaves to their emotions right? they're not led by the Holy Spirit but they're led by their flesh and they're slaves to their emotions and so when they're having a bad day get out of his way you know just leave him alone stand the distance because you know, he's not in control that's why Proverbs twenty five twenty eight: a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Right. So if a man has no self-control, spirit control, and there are emotions, he is helpless to any predator, any, any warrior, any enemy, he's helpless. Right. We see this in uh, this temperate quality in Job's life. When he was wealthy, I mean, he was rich, he had many children, servants, material possessions, he wasn't living it up. He wasn't like living for the world, living for uh, just more pleasure and mindlessly happy. Talked to her brother, got a good job, his income just increased significantly. And he was saying, James, but I want to be humble. I don't want to be materialistic. Can you, can you keep me accountable? I, I know my income shot up significantly, but I want to just live my life here. Right? I want to be temperate. Right? I want to be modest. I want to be free from extremes. The Job was like that. When he was rich, he wasn't living like a lavish, extravagant lifestyle. You know, if you got it, show it, flaunting it wherever you went. No, he was a righteous man, walking humbly with the Lord. And when all of it was taken away within a matter of a few days... When calamity came upon his life, he didn't go to the other extreme. When his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not not trouble? Oh, bless the Lord's name. Things are great. I'm going to bless the Lord's name humbly. Things are going bad. I'm going to bless the Lord's name humbly. An older man must have this this perspective. I mean, he should learn from Scripture. At the very least, learn from life experience. That there are good days and bad days. Good weeks and bad weeks. There are tough times at work and easy times at work. There are good years and bad years. But we are not to respond to the world. Because the world is chaotic. If we live in response to the world, we'll, our lives will be chaotic. If our emotions are tied to our experience or situation, our emotions are up and down like a roller coaster. An older man should have learned that my emotions is tied to the unchanging character of God and the promises of Scripture. And so my happiness, my joy is not robbed by sorrows of life. Yes, I grieve. You know, Christ cried in Lazarus' you know, uh, gravesite. 
But it's not grieving like an unbeliever. Grieving as a Christian. There's joy. You rejoice. But rejoice in light of God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness. You rejoice as a Christian. A mature man sees life and sees the joys and and sorrows and takes it all in, soaks it all in his heart and responds with moderation. When good things happen, he doesn't say, I'm special. You understand? You know, God's been good to me right now. I know it won't last. Right? Man, God is good. I don't want to be presumptuous. My marriage is good. Oh, so now I can kind of you know, goof around a little bit. You know? Go, go play and neglect my family. No, he understands. He's not presumptuous of life and, and, and people. When bad things happen, when life is difficult, he doesn't lose it. He understands. Trials come. All under God's sovereignty. And the vice of youth is that they're reactionary. They go from one attitude to another. Older men should be marked by the opposite of that. They are not reactionary. They are stable men. Temperate from extremes. They are balanced. That's why when a child is, you know, moody, you know, their, their temperament is just and a hair trigger, okay, I understand. Younger man is struggling with moodiness, okay. That's just how you go through life. You know, maybe, may God give you grace. But an older man, he, he must not be moody. Right? If you're an older man, if you're, especially if you're married, especially if you have children and you're moody, man, you've got to repent of that. That's not honoring to the Lord. And you color the culture of your family. You influence your wife. How come I can't shepherd my wife? Because you've got a frown on your face every day. How come my children aren't responding to me? Because you're just sad all the time. Or you're just all over the place. As older men, you need to be stable so that people under you can trust you. They can have confidence. Right? They can have strength. When calamities come, they look to you and you're like, it's all good. It's all right. You know, God will provide. God's sovereign. It'll be okay. They gain strength from that. You're ministering to them by your attitude, your character. Your heart should be always joy. Right? Even times of sorrow, it is tempered with joy. Confidence in Christ. An older man must not be melodramatic. You know, low maintenance. If you're non-maintenance, you know those non-maintenance batteries, man, that's the goal, right? You don't, no one needs to like stroke your ego. No one needs to like, you're not love hungry. You're not attention hungry. You're not encouragement hungry. You are encouraged by the word. And you're there to encourage others. Your heart is in a good place. You're fighting for that every day. We all fail. I fail. But older men, you're growing in that area. In this area of emotions, I see young men, I am, I myself am one, struggle is the area of anger. Like giving to losing their temper. But this idea of like, anger is only when you lose it. No, if you're irked, if you're frustrated, if you're upset, and your wife can see it, your children can notice it, your friends see it in your expression, your mannerism, in your, in your attitude, you're angry. 
If you can't control your heart and keep it there, but it's expressed where it's influenced, where it's shown to others, that's anger. Oh, and you, you know, you, someone says, you're angry. I'm not angry. I'm not. I, I'm not. You're angry. If it can be seen, it's anger. Does that make sense? If you're fighting in your heart, you have a smile on your face, no one can see that you're, you know, just, you know, bent up anger in your heart, you're, you're, you're fighting it. You're fighting temptation. But if it can be seen, that's anger. And the Bible says a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. James 1.20 Proverbs 14.7 You know what causes you to act foolishly? You know, when you say, Wow, why did I say that? Why did I act that way? That was so just stupid. That was so idiotic. It's because a man's man of quick temper acts foolishly. Proverbs 14.17 Anger will cause you to do dumb things. Make dumb decisions. Proverbs 14.29 Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is, but he who is, who has a hasty temper exalts folly. He reveals himself to be a foolish man. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs sixteen thirty-two: Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who is leader of a city. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Proverbs 19.11 It is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory. Right. Proverbs 29.11 A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Very aware. Older man. It's embarrassing when you see an older man you know, I have a temper tantrum. A little kid. You know, get all irked and upset and frustrated about. It's like, it's like embarrassing, humiliating. It's unsightly. It's like, that's not like a little kid. He's huffing and puffing and all self-absorbed and he's acting foolishly. And there's no dignity. There's no respectability. And I understand, you know, like women, you know, you guys, you know, you guys, it's hard as a man, right? I was there. I was a young man. I remember, you know, our family... We're known by anger, right? Like, we talk, no one would listen to you unless you got angry. So that's how we communicated. So we would have preemptive anger, right? Because I know you'd get angry, I have to get angry first to nullify your anger, you know, so I, I, I get heard. And so I grew up in that, as a, as part of my character. I mean, I, my wife would testify, I mean, by God's grace, I think my wife, I think my wife would testify last five years, man, very good. Right? Very little frustration irked here and there, but I haven't lost my temper the last five, six, seven years. But man, early, early, when I was dating, one of my pet peeves was like, I order, I, I don't like cheese on my hamburgers. <laughs> I just can't handle cheese on my hamburgers. I, it just ruins the hamburger for me. I go to McDonald's, hamburger, no cheese. Okay, what do you want? No, hamburger without cheese? Yes, please, no cheese. Get the bag, and my wife's sitting next to me, and I go, we open the bag, it's cheeseburger. Man, several times, at least three times, I go around again. And I would, I would get angry. I said no cheese. I'll get so upset. And my wife's like, what is your problem? You know, just scrape the cheese off. What's the big deal? But there's still a little bit left of the bun. 
you taste it, it just ruins the burger. I, mean, I, I look at myself, and like, you know, humiliating, embarrassing, you know, on the way to church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, and like, you go through that, and you see, wow, I'm still young. I'm still not tempered. I got ways to go. I mean, it's been like incremental growth, emotions, temper, anger, and just slow progress. But by God's grace, I'm progressing. So don't get discouraged by, it's hard, controlling one's emotions. I mean, God grant you grace to grow in this, grow, grow here. Second area is finances. Being tempered in finances. Men are often tempted to go to extremes with possessions. So they give in to First Timothy 6.10, love of money. And they're ensnared in all kinds of foolish and sinful things because they want to make money, take shortcuts. And they get into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of debt, ungodly interest rates, all because, right? Because they could not control themselves in this area of finances. They could not, they didn't have the wisdom to budget and stick to their budget. Their heart was full of greed and envy and they're keeping up with the Joneses and they're all about impulsive buying. They can't control their impulses. And they're constantly shopping. Even though they're not, they don't need it, they're always just looking at catalogs, looking at magazines, looking at ads, looking at things that are not going to come on the market for two, three years. So preemptive purchasing, right? Preemptive enjoying to buy at the earliest possible moment. Because they're not temperate, they're not modest, they're given to extravagance, especially those who are not rich, right? They can't afford it. Talk to a brother, brother. I know your finance. You're not rich, but your your life's a deception. Your life's a lie because you look rich. I look at that watch you're wearing, man. You know my watch, fourteen ninety five from you know I think Walmart, right? Columbia, name brand, right? <laughs> right? But your watch, wow. You know, your shoes. I've never bought shoes. You, your shoes, I could, I could not purchase. Your clothes, your, your haircut, the car you drive. I mean, I've never seen you wear the same outfit twice, right? You have a wardrobe. You don't have a, you don't have clothes, you have a wardrobe. So you look rich, but you're not. I know your finances, and I know what's going on. I know that because you have debt, and you feel pressure, and you feel stress, the way to release that pressure is by shopping, increasing your debt. And so you get more depressed, right? More frustrated, more, you struggle more. So what do you do? Take out that credit card, you buy more things. You feel good for that moment. And it's a cycle, devastating cycle. And getting worse, impulsive buying, no planning, no budget, financial decisions are made on impulse, you wrongly believe, doctrinally you believe in right things, but practically you believe that happiness consists of buying things, of possessing things. But an older man, we should, have, we should know better, right? When we're young, that's the trappings of youth, but as older men, we understand, you know, wow, you know, buying that laptop, 
I was so great for that first few months, but now it's like, God, happiness isn't really there. When I, when I bought that car, new car smelled so great for a few months, but now I, I don't even wash it, right? These clothes, man, I don't really care. As an older man, you learn like, the value, what's really valuable, what's really important in life. And you see, true joy is not tied to these things. These ads of satisfaction guarantee is a lie. You, know, you bought enough things on those infomercials to realize it doesn't work as well after you buy it and use it at home. Right? And you realize, wow, time for me to live by different priorities, have a different mentality, different attitude towards money. Right? It's not for my pleasure, but it's for God's glory. Right? Older men should learn these lessons and should have these qualities and be practicing them in greater measure. Third area is love of pleasure. Love of pleasure, amusement, entertainment. Temperate means not given to extremes and the love of pleasure. Proverbs 21.17 Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. Proverbs 21.20 In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. There's leftovers, savings. Things are set aside for the future. But a foolish man devours all he has. He is indulgent. He is a glutton. He has a huge appetite, an insatiable appetite for pleasure, for entertainment, for amusement, he can't stop. He goes from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure and he lives a sensuous living, a sensual lifestyle where it's all about feeding his senses. And so he's not growing in godliness because godliness is about meditation, it's about discipline, it's about focus, it's about responsibility, it's about discipline, it's about having a sober mind, it's, it's about being faithful. And what wages war against those things is the passions of the flesh. Wage war against our soul. When he's feeding these things, he's feeding his flesh rather than the spirit. Love of pleasure. Absolutely critical. In terms of even food. Entertainment. Hobbies, not being indulgent. Older man understands. It's like when you're a kid, you go to a Magic Mountain, happiest day of your life. Wow. You know, I don't have to think. Amuse, right? I don't have to amuse. I don't have to think. Enjoy these roller coasters. You know, teacup. Wow, I love it, you know. As you get older, if you're 30 and you love going to Magic Mountain riding a teacup, you know, I talked to you after church today. Like you, you know, like we grew out of that. That thrill, that momentary high. Like, come on, teacup, please. Like, even the classes. Like, I've been on that thing, and it's, you know, I'd rather sit here and have coffee. You know, like, I'd rather read a good book. Likewise, but the world is inventing amusement. Right? It's just different. It's more high, higher technology, you know, maybe greater entertainment, but the, the, the world is out there trying to 
amuse men and take them away from responsibility, take them away from being temperate, and you know, like have them on a cold winter night wait outside on a line three in the morning to buy a video game, right? And to spend and spend hours, I mean days, weeks. Right, one Korean guy died playing video games, right? And he was just playing video games for 48 hours without sleeping. He died. I mean, remember that illustration from Yahoo? I mean, that's, that's men. That's what the world wants. Older men, we should move away from these childish games and toys and amusements and move on to the responsibilities that God has granted to us. Knowing what's at stake with the Word of God, convicting non-believers, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, what is at stake in terms of, of being examples in the church, knowing what is at stake in terms of ministry, a man says, I'm going to put these things away for the sake of these right things. Closing thoughts, several closing thoughts. Again, these, qual- these qualities, character traits, are goals for all Christians, not just for older men. Younger men, start today. Right? Like junior high students, elementary students, start today. Why ensnare yourself to these habits and have to work at breaking them later? Right? Why toy with them? Why foster that in your heart and have to fight it later? Start young. Men and women. These are qualities, character qualities for, for all Christians. Secondly, these are all perceived characteristics. Perceived characteristics. So you, you don't point to yourself and say, I'm a temperate man. Right? I'm dignified. I'm sober. No, these are perceived and others perceive this of you. So... Um, the perception that others have of you, your reputation is accurate, more accurate than your perception of yourself. Other people's opinions of you is more accurate than your opinion of yourself, knowing how prideful we are. Especially guys, especially guys. You see that man poll that they did in Newsweek years ago, I talked about this. Women look at the mirror and they see what's wrong. Men look at the mirror and they see what's right. right? 90% of men think they look good. A lot of deluded men out there. Right? They think I'm God's gift to you know, you know, Earth. Look at me, right? And so they, we have a totally false view of ourselves because of the pride of man. So all the more you need other people to help you to see these qualities and grow these qualities. Where do you start? Who should the man listen to for him to rightly gauge his character? Start with your family. Talk to your wife if you got one. Talk to your brothers or sisters. Talk to your parents. Talk to your close you know, family members or friends. Pastor MacArthur, if you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, look at the most intimate relationships in his life. And see if he can do it there. Look at his family and you will find the people who know him best. Who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them about the kind of man he is. 
ask family members. So John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress was a man who was a saint abroad, devil at home. Description fits too many men. To challenge you, if you're serious about these qualities, go home and ask members of your family about your own character. Ask them, how am I in this area of being temperate? What extremes do you see in my life? How am I most? Do you walk on eggshells around me? Do you fear me getting upset or frustrated, outright angry? You know, how do you see in terms of my finances? Am I wise? Do I live appropriately to my income, to my lifestyle? Right? Am I am I wise with my possessions? And what about my entertainment choices? Hours I spend, or how much energy I devote to hobbies or amusement, entertainment. Is it temperate? Is it modest? Or am I being indulgent? Ask members of your family. You know, may I? You know, I'm not preaching the word just to preach the word. I'm, I'm preaching to myself, and I want to be honest with you because I'm not a professional pastor. It's not my job. I'm your pastor, so I want to just I share my life not for you know I share my cheeseburger story. So there's no right. It's not, I'm not here to promote, promote myself, but just share these things to tell you how, how I live my life to wage. A, a battle in this area. I mean, Surin and I stay up at night. We ask ourselves. I ask Surin, you know, in my life, do you see these things? Surin asks me, and we ask ourselves, how do we discourage people like Cornerstone? Right? How do we, by our attitude, by our actions, by our decisions, discourage? I'm going to say, we must discourage some of you, many of you. We must dishearten you and frustrate you. What do we do or not do that cause people? Maybe have a lower view of the Word of God. Maybe have not be convicted in their lives of their their issues, or not adorn, not make God beautiful to them. Right. So ask members of your family. Secondly, ask members, church leaders. Right. Ask the elders, but we're kind of busy. So ask your flock shepherds. <laughs> They're a little busy too. So ask start with your small group leaders. Right. Ask them. Right. Ask them these questions. Do I display a spirit-led ability to do things in moderation? Right. Am I spirit-led or am I led by the flesh? So do you see moderation in my life? Do you see anything that has control over me? Right. Do you see anything that I take into my body that has control over me? Do I display the ability to do things, do all things in moderation? What about my hobbies and pastimes? Am I being indulgent? Or is it tempered by God's word? Do I regularly deny my liberties for the sake of others? Do I deny myself the freedom that I have for the sake of others? Am I self-centered or other-centered? Am I concerned? Do I love others where I I pull myself back? I have the right to do this. I have the freedom to participate in this. But am I modest 
for the sake of others? Uh, am I modest in my... Okay, I have a two-sided question. Uh, modest in my, um, in my appearance? Do I give inordinate time to my appearance? Am I obsessed about my looks? About my weight? About my dress? Am I just indulgent? Am I going overboard with how I look? On the other side, is am I overweight? Have I given myself to the flesh where I'm just being a glutton? I'm being indulgent? Do I respond well when confronted, corrected, and rebuked? Or do I get, get, am I easily offended? Right? Do you have to like be careful with your words around me? Do you have to be like, you know, like walk on eggshells lest you offend me? Or am I a guy? Am I a man? Or you can come and talk to me, brother. You know, go at it. Open court. Let me know. I want to know. I want to grow. Do you, do you sense freedom with me in counseling and shepherding me? Or are you forced to be timid because you're not afraid of me. You're afraid for me. Because lest you correct me and I just lose it, you know, and I like to just completely lose it. I get, I get disheartened, discouraged, I throw everything, I quit. Are you afraid for me? Right. How are my emotions? Am I free from significant and uncontrolled financial debts? Right. How is my, what's my FICO score? What's my debt to income ratio? Right. How am I spending my money? Right. Am I, is it, is it tempered? Is it modest? Is it wise or is it indulgent? Is it foolish? Right. Ultimately, our example is Jesus Christ. Right. We, it's not what would Jesus do. Right. Who was Jesus? He was the perfect man in every way. He's the model for us as a man. So it's not what would Jesus, his decisions, his actions but his character, his life. How did he relate to his family? How did he relate to his friends? How did he relate to his enemies? How did he conduct himself in this world? How was he in terms of being temperate? Emotionally, in terms of possessions, in terms of just his life. Let us study the doctrine of Christ. Imitate him in every way so that we might be men of bring honor to Christ. Just close your eyes. Let's not move anything. Um, you can ask. If you just pray for the men of our church, all your wives, pray for your husbands. All women, pray for the men of our church. Men, let's pray for one another. Um, Let's ask God to grant the men of our church much grace in this area. Oh, holy gracious and kind Father we ask that you would grant grace to the men of our church we humbly uh, 
implore you from junior high students all the way to younger and older men that you that we would know the kind of growth you desire for us it's not merely growth in word and prayer and evangelism and just activity but you desire us to grow in character desire us to grow in just being modest and being temperate being balanced even keeled in these areas well Lord our hope is not in ourselves we look at ourselves and we're maybe myself included many of us are discouraged disheartened because we say to ourselves, I tried before. This is just who I am. I am relegated to this marginal life as a Christian man and I see no hope. But Lord, it's always because we've looked to ourselves for strength. We, Our confidence was in our flesh and we're always doomed to fail when, when we trust in ourselves. Lord, help us exhort ourselves and work hard at pursuing these qualities, but yet Grant this grace to have faith in you. That our trust is not ourselves, but on the cross, the finished work of Christ, that you, through the Holy Spirit, is ever at work to conform us to the image of Christ, and you will do whatever it takes to make us more like Him in every way. You who raised your Son from the grave, from death, and conquered sin, and caused us to be in Christ, will you now abandon us to mediocre Christianity? Lord, no, the Bible promises and our trust is in the promises of the Scriptures. And so we have hope and we have joy and we have confidence this morning because you will do the work. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You began the good work and you will finish it in your time, in your way. So help us, O Lord, to work out our salvation and to work out these qualities with fear and trembling, to giving ourselves, doing our best, as workmen approved, to do our best to, uh, to mold and, and produce these character qualities in our lives. And at the end, we will give all glory to you. Lord, give grace. We ask for your help to all the men of our church. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's seek to know Christ, that we might grow, be like Him, more and more every day.